This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Wisdom of Hobbits, by me, Matthew J. DiStefano. In this hopeful yet at times poignant homage, I focus on everyone's favorite halfling friend, the Hobbit. A charming people, this Shire-based race has captivated, enthralled, and enchanted the hearts and minds of millions. And though they're not a religious society, I argue that spiritual truths, love, kindness, generosity, hope, and even compassion can be found within their familiar yet still relevant and didactic tales. So come and enter a world of adventure and intrigue. Whether it's your first foray into Middle-earth or the Shire is your second home, allow me to inspire you toward discovering your own inner hobbit. Available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your fine, fine books. From Choir Publishing. What's up, friends? Hello. Welcome back. Another podcast episode coming your way. I had a lot of questions about Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. He seemed to have come out of nowhere. Um, some of the news that I found is quite disturbing. He seems like he's pretty deeply involved in the Christian nationalist world, has some pretty extreme views on uh, on people who are queer, on trying to outlaw all abortion for any kind of reason, et cetera. And I was like, you know, we have to do a deep dive on this. So I, I talked to Matthew Taylor. Now, he's been on the podcast before. He is someone who really knows this stuff, especially when it comes to the charismatic and what he calls the new apostolic reformation side of things. And it turns out that Mike Johnson is pretty freakishly embedded in the NAR world. Um, and this makes sense when you realize that Mike Johnson tried to be well, he tried to overturn the 2020 election. He was one of the main people working behind the scenes to try to stop the certification process. And now that man is second in line to the presidency after, of course, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So Matthew comes on to give us the deep dive and to kind of refresh all of us on what the NAR is. And we get into some things. Listen, this is not a feel good episode. I'm telling, you, I'm telling you that right now. But hopefully this motivates you to realize that we have to work together to make the change that we want to see. Um, We just need to. The good news is that there are people who are waking up to this. You, the listener, are one of those or or are some of those people. I am someone who's new uh, to this work only a couple years in, but also has woken up to it. There is work to do. People like Matthew are so key in that process. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. I hope that it helps you better understand why Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House is a massive win for the Christian nationalist, uh, you know, psyche and just the culture that 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 they're all a part of, but also understanding just how extreme the New Apostolic Reformation actually is and what they actually believe, and how frankly they have no problem subverting democracy if it does not serve them well anymore. So yeah, buckle up for this episode, friends. It is really a doozy. That being said, of course, if you want to support the work that we do, you can share this episode. You can also donate. As I said in my previous episode this week, we are working on a complete content overhaul that requires an all-hands-on-deck approach, and that means donations. I'm just being honest with you. We have a whole budget outlined. We need to get the people on staff to really start crafting content that is designed for social media, for podcasts, to really start combating and being the antidote 
to all the rhetoric that we're seeing and frankly the actions and the wins that Christian nationalists are able to make because of how deeply embedded they are in politics and in government and in other powerful places. So if you are able and willing, please consider donating to our work. We are a nonprofit organization. We do everything paywall free. We are doing our absolute best to help educate people on what's happening in our cultural moment and offering a better Jesus-centered, inclusive view of uh, of this stuff. You know, I'm not sure about you, but I am sick and tired of people like Charlie Kirk and Ali Stuckey and Mark Driscoll and John MacArthur having the corner on what is quote unquote Christian. Like, no, you guys don't own the corner on the gospel. You don't own you don't own the corner on what is Christian. There are other people who are committed to Jesus, who are committed to a better path forward in their in their faith, who completely disagree with you and want to offer our culture at large and people who have been marginalized by the evangelical church a better way forward. Your donations make that possible. You can click on the link in our show notes. All donations are tax deductible. I'm incredibly grateful for our donors. And without you, this work is not possible. All right, friends. Wow, that was a lot. But without further ado, here's my interview with Matt. I would love your feedback on it. I will talk to you all next week. Wait, I'm sorry. One more thing. My bad. IHOP. I am working on a podcast series on IHOP feverishly. We had a major audio problem with our interview that I did a couple days ago. I am going through it to fix it. It's just very tedious. So expect part one out sometime next week. Most likely if I can get it out by Friday, you know, tomorrow I will do that, but expect it probably sometime next week. We are doing a a two, maybe three part series, unpacking IHOP, getting stories from people who used to go there. And of course, helping you understand what's currently happening with Mike Bickle and his allegations that appear to be very credible of sexual abuse. So stay tuned for more. It's coming out hopefully next week. Grateful for you all. Talk to you later. Hi, TNE listeners. This is Cherry Rodriguez from Bella Vista, Arkansas. I started supporting the New Evangelicals as a monthly donor back in 2022 after hearing Tim's interview with Dan Miner, who pastors an affirming church in Florida. Tim asked Dan what he sees as the way forward, and Dan put it bluntly, churches and organizations doing the most harm in Jesus' name are well-funded. He challenged listeners to give to work we believe in that holds evangelicalism accountable. I made my first donation to TNE that day and have since joined the fundraising team. This is work I believe the world needs, and I'm honored to support it as a monthly donor. Dr. Matthew Taylor, great to have you back on the podcast. Uh, we had you on a few months ago, so thanks for making time. It's great to be here with you. Well, thank you for inviting me back, Tim. Absolutely. Um, you have been doing a lot of work in a lot of the spaces that I tend to intersect with. And when I saw the news about Mike Johnson becoming Speaker of the House and more and more pieces of evidence coming out that he was tied to what we would say are some more Christian nationalist spaces, I thought of you right away and was wondering what you were going to say. And then you did some digging and found out his connection to the New Apostolic Reformation. I said, oh, we got to talk about this on the podcast. Now, you are someone who's also been on the Straight White American Jesus podcast several times, um, m- more recently about the same conversation. So I recommend folks check that out. And you did a really well done six part series, I believe on the new Epistolic reformation and their connection to the January 6th insurrection. That's also on that podcast, which I I've recommended so many times because, because it's such a methodical, well done approach to making something that seems very nebulous and hard to grab, very understandable. So thanks for doing your work on that. And I'm, I'm glad to have the conversation today. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm always happy to be here. 
let's start here. I mean, Mike Johnson, right? This was a person who, well, let me back up. I was following the House of Representatives, the the the, the battle for the speaker, so to speak, right? But before this, it was Kevin McCarthy. There was a, a, a select few people, for lack of a better term, I'll, I'll call them the far right GOP, the Matt Gates of the world, et cetera, who never seemed to be super thrilled with Kevin McCarthy. It seems like he kind of cut a deal working with Marjorie Taylor Greene of all people to make that thing happen. And I guess he did something to piss off the right people, and they actually recalled him, which I don't think is a very common thing that happens uh, in our politics. And then a battle for a new speaker took place, and, and Jim Jordan for a while was like at the front of this. Now, Jim Jordan is someone I have seen many times, I'm somewhat familiar with, and he was someone I was like, wow, I if he gets to be elected, we're I think we're in a lot of trouble. He's He espouses you know, January 6th denying stuff and very far right, very Christian nationalist. And then they elect this guy named Mike, Mike Johnson, who seems to be like someone put it in my DMs. They're like, this is the Jim Jordan, uh, like intellectual version. He was a lawyer, but like the same, a lot of the same ideology. Can you kind of give us maybe an overview of, of how you were tracking this story and kind of what you saw fall into place? Sure. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard that Mike Johnson even said that he is um, Robin to Jim Jordan's Batman. <laughs> which I, I think it, it gives you a sense of the two personalities involved as well. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I was like everyone else just watching the speaker's race it, it, with a mix of bemusement and horror. Um, it was right. I mean, there was, there was first the debacle with Kevin McCarthy, even getting into that role early on this year where they had to go through 15 votes and everything. Um, but I, similarly, I, I was not tracking Mike Johnson at all. Um, right. he, he had not popped up on my, my screen at all prior to him basically becoming the speaker. So um, I just, I, at that point, I myself started digging because um, I had seen people making comments that, oh, well, he has connections to the NAR or he's part of the NAR. I would not say he's part of the NAR, but I, I, I was like, well, that, that is my, my bailiwick. So I'm going to try to dig into that a little bit and found actually quite a bit. Wow. Um, I... I guess let's start here just to give the audience a very quick understanding. Can you just define the NAR and like what you're actually talking about? Evangelicalism is very non-monolithic, yet they are unified and yet they're also so distinct. So it can be hard to put labels on this stuff. But just to give us a working definition, how do you define the NAR? Yeah. So if you think about if we're talking about evangelicalism writ large, yeah. right, the, the big picture of evangelicalism, it's a huge movement. Um, in America, it's a big umbrella term that incorporates all kinds of denominations, all kinds of forms of belief, all kinds of different theologies. Some evangelicals are what we would call charismatic. What we mean by charismatic is very invested in what they talk about as the spiritual gifts, <clears throat> interested in recreating the supernatural environment of the early church, the world of miracles and prophecy and apostles and prophets performing miracles and healing people, right? These are all kind of markers of a kind of charismatic spirituality. So most people, when they think of charismatic, think of Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism is a denominational movement that emerged in the early 20th century. So that's one form of charismaticism. What we're talking about here is a different form of charismaticism. It's, it's the, what we call the independent charismatic world. So these are non-denominational charismatic churches, um, and the New Apostolic Reformation is a movement, a, 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 I sometimes just call it a network of networks that emerged in the independent charismatic world starting in the mid-1990s. 
Um, it was coordinated by a guy named C. Peter Wagner, who was a, a seminary professor at Fuller Seminary. Um, he left Fuller um, in 1999 to really work on this New Apostolic Reformation stuff full time. He gathered co different cohorts of leaders. Um, almost all the leaders in Wagner's networks refer to themselves as either apostles or prophets. Um, and they believe that modern day um, evangelicalism has atrophied. They, they would say that the entire church has atrophied um, because they didn't have the leadership of these dynamic, charismatic apostles and prophets. And so part of the, the premise of the New Apostolic Reformation from the start was that the, the church needs to be renewed and we need to have people occupying these offices of apostle and prophet back. That was part of the early church. It died out over the centuries. And now we need to bring that back. And we need to, God is going to commission new apostles and prophets. And so the NAR is this band, these, these sets of networks, these overlapping networks of organizations that Peter Wagner built, circles of mentees that he had that um, are all understanding themselves as renewing the church through the charismatic ministry of apostles and prophets. And what I want to argue in, in the series that I did with Charismatic Revival Fury and, and in my forthcoming book is those networks were the backbone of Christian Trumpism. They, they created the theology of Christian Trumpism and the leaders from those networks um, became integral to the Trump administration and the Trump interface with broader evangelicalism. And then those networks were at the heart of the organizing for January 6th on the Christian side of that organizing and really did uh, more than, as far as I can tell, did more than any other cohesive body to mobilize Christians to show up on January 6th to do spiritual warfare and to stand with Donald Trump. Are there any names that um, folks out there might recognize that have, have either been influenced by the NAR um, or are directly involved in it that were part of, you know, this Christian Trumpism, like I think about like Paula White, for example, you know, is she someone who was NAR adjacent? Is she influenced by them? What are some other names that we we might recognize? Yeah, so Paula White or Paula White Kane um, is she she changed her name in her after her third marriage um, is uh, she has called herself an apostle, um, but I would say she's in a different segment, a different set of networks in that independent charismatic world. But she's definitely in alliance with a lot of the NAR folks, knows a lot of them. So the major figures from the NAR would be people like Lance Wallnow, mm -hmm. uh, Dutch Sheets, Cindy Jacobs, Che Ahn, um, Jim Hodges. These are folks that were all very, very close to Peter Wagner, were in his mentoring group. He had a, he had a select mentoring group of 25 people called the Eagles Vision Apostolic Team. And out of those 25 people, five of them show up on January 6th. And another wow. six or seven of them are involved in mobilizing Christians to be there or to, to support Donald Trump and Trump's election lies. So it's a very important networking space. But yeah, so Bill Hammond is another name that comes up a lot with the NAR. Um, a, a lot of times, though, the interesting thing is these NAR leaders are not household names. These are not your Tony right. Perkins, right? These right. are not the people that you would think of when you think of the Christian right. But they become incredibly influential in the religious right, especially over the last decade. Sean Foyt, who's a name that many people probably would recognize. I have a whole oh, chapter I know in my that book. Name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got a whole chapter in my book on Sean Foyt. Um, but Sean Foyt, um, even though I wouldn't say that he is part of the NAR, he was not in Wagner's networks. He has been mentored for the last 20 years by multiple leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation, including Cheon and Lou Engel are two of the most central. But there's also a, um, an apostle in, uh, named Charles Stock 
who's been very influential, um, who's part of Che On's network today. Um, but Charles Stock was very influential for Sean Foyt as well. So Sean Foyt has emerged. And if you listen to his theology, it is, it is straight New Apostolic Reformation ideas. He's blended that some with Bethel, which is kind of adjacent to the NAR, I'd say. And Bethel is this entire empire in the independent charismatic world of music, worship music. They've got the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. So Sean Floyd, I would say, is kind of a, a hybrid of Bethel and the NAR. Maybe like merging those two worlds together a little bit with his rhetoric and his theology. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of us, including myself, are very familiar with Bethel. I played a lot of their music as a drummer. Their music is really all over the place. And they, listen, for, for what they do song-wise, they, they write a lot of songs that are very catchy and very well-written. Um, and so that's helpful because I think, you know, I'm realizing more and more, like, as we unpack the term evangelical, I, I've done this too, where you kind of just conflate charismatic, they're all in one group instead of kind of, you know, dividing them down into their smaller segments and where they overlap and where they don't. Um, when it comes to the NAR, you're right, a lot of these names are not household names, but clearly they're very influential. One question I have, again, I'm trying to give the audience and myself a framework for this. Right now, we all know what's happening at IHOP International House of Prayer with Mike Bickle coming under um, credible accusations of sexual abuse that have been covered up for decades, according to people who used to be on the board there. Um, and a lot of people, I've interviewed a, a few folks now um, about IHOP, and that will be coming out soon. And they talk a lot about this like eschatology of like, you know, the return of Christ is really big. They're really big on profit and authority. Are, is IHOP in that NAR world as well? Or are they a different stream of the independent charismatics? Yeah, let me do a little history to give you Let's a go. sense of where this comes from. So in the um, in 1948, there's a, an, a, a, an emergence of a movement, a revival movement in Pentecostalism starts in Saskatchewan called the Latter Rain. Sometimes they go by the New Order of the Latter Rain. Um, and it's this Pentecostal revival, very charismatic spirituality. And this is where you first start hearing these, this talk of modern day apostles, modern day prophets is through the Latter Rain. The latter reign also have this very um, elaborate eschatology that's all about the church being victorious in the end of times, that there will be this great revival at the end of times led by these renewed apostles and prophets. And this is the vision in the 1940s and 1950s. Those ideas kind of percolate and ping pong around the independent charismatic world up until about the 1980s. And then you start seeing people emerging who start calling themselves apostles and prophets in the 1980s. And IHOP comes out of that world. The NAR comes out of that world. Bethel all come out of that world. They're all downstream of the latter rain. I would argue, though, that the NAR and IHOP and Bethel are three distinct brands of within the independent charismatic world that are all descended from that latter rain and that all work together. So many of the people at IHOP are friends with the NAR people, people like Dutch Sheets and Lou Engel, all these folks, they all were, would speak at IHOP in Kansas City. They all speak at Bethel. Bethel people speak at IHOP. IHOP people speak at Bethel. Like, this, this world is not a world of clear boundaries so much as you have these distinct streams that often are merging and connecting with each other. There's and cross-pollination um, happening. Absolutely. And, and and Mike Bickle was involved in some of the early NAR networks and then kind of detached himself from that um, and decided to do his own thing. But many of the other leaders that were foundational, this group called the Kansas City Prophets, who kind of laid the foundation that Mike Bickle was, was a part of, of building the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, the, 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 some of those same Kansas City Prophets wound up becoming part of the NAR networks as well. So there's a lot of cross-pollination, a lot of shared ideas, um, but the eschatology that comes out in, the, in IHOP is, is fairly distinctive to IHOP, but also is very attached to this, um, these latter rain ideas. 
Okay, thank you. I, I know it's a, a, maybe a smidge or two off topic, but it's important, I think, for, again, for the audience and myself to understand exactly what we're talking about with these definitions. So thanks for taking time to unpack that. So Mike Johnson, right? Let's get back to him because I agree with you, Matt. Like he was someone, I'm not claiming to be the most knowledgeable on, on these topics, but I, I track a lot of the political movement and Christian nationalism as much as I can. I never heard of this guy. He was totally off my radar do you have, and maybe if you don't know the answer to this, that's fine, but I have to ask you, do you know, like, were there forces behind getting Mike to become like the speaker? Was there a move in the Christian nationalist world that was like, oh, we have an opportunity, let's all push Mike? Because my understanding is that every Republican voted for Mike, uh, as opposed to Jim Jordan, where he could not get the vote. So my mind is 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 breaking here because he's someone who denies the 2020 election. You know, he tried to overturn the certification process and more and more things are coming out about him that, that don't make him seem much more moderate than Jim Jordan. So do you have any insight to like some of the back end there by any chance? I can give a little bit of sense of rumors <laughs> that, that you hear yes, coming out of kind of new Obstacle reformation and, and uh, the independent charismatic world. So um, I, I think most people were focused on Jim Jordan, right? He was he was in the in the news a lot. He was the yeah. in terms of where Christian nationalists and these networks were pushing. I think it was around Jim Jordan. Of course, he didn't get across the finish line, despite some very heavy-handed tactics. Um, Jim Jordan and Mike Johnson are very close um, and have spent seemingly have, have kind of worked hand in glove a lot of the time. And I think Johnson, on a practical level, was seen as a more acceptable and more ambiguous. He's kind of a Rorschach test for, for Republicans, right? Everyone can kind of project onto him what they want to see. Um, but in his own identity and in his background, he's deeply steeped in these hyper-conservative, very right-wing views, very um, anti-abortion, almost the point, point of abortion abolitionism, right? Mm. Completely eradicating abortion, very anti-LGBTQ, right? But I think he he's he presents as moderate. Even though his views are very radical and extreme, he presents as calm and polite mm -hmm. and genteel and courteous. And if you listen to him talk, he doesn't raise his voice like Jim Jordan does. He's not bombastic. Yes. He's not angry. And so when I think just on, on, a, on a presentation level and on a relational level, I think he's a lot less controversial within the Republican caucus. I will say what you hear people like Dutch Sheets and some of these other NAR people who are around Johnson saying is that they started hearing that he was going to be a candidate several days before he mm. was, before mm. it was officially announced. They start, they, they were already praying. They knew him. They, they recognized who he was. And they saw him as sort of their guy. They didn't feel as much attachment to, uh, to Jim Jordan. They, because they, I don't think they had a relationship with Jim Jordan, but they saw Johnson as their guy. And so he kind of became the dark horse candidate. And once Jordan drops out, then suddenly everyone unites around Mike Johnson. And I think some of these NAR folks were working behind the scenes to push that um, once they realized that he was a, he was a potential for this role. But I don't think that it, it was. It, I don't. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I don't believe that there was some yes. some nefarious plot to get him in that position. I think a lot of it was happenstance. A lot of it was exhaustion on the part yeah. of the Republican caucus because they'd spent three plus weeks trying to find somebody that they could put in that role. 
you know, I, I really wish, I, I hope that there are people who listen to this who maybe don't agree with me on a lot of things, or or I, ha I have a lot of people that I talk to who are more moderate conservative who really are like, hey, man, I think Christian nationalism is bad, but I don't think it's a major issue. And I wish that, I hope that, that they hear what you just said, that there are people who, as far as like a majority view, their views are, are largely rejected by most people, but they're in positions of power to get people like Mike Johnson into the right place at the right time to get him elected. I mean, even Mike Johnson's wife, there's an article of several that have come out that 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 her old counseling service, which is now you know inaccessible publicly, uh, compared being gay to things like bestiality and incest. I mean, this is what we're talking about, right? And I also want to be very clear to the audience who's listening. This is not problematic because Mike Johnson is more conservative than me. You know, we're we do our best not to paint like conservatism conservatism as a bad thing innately, but we're talking about what I call a far right version of that, right? When you're advocating for things like borderline abolition of all abortions for any kind of reason ever, or, hey, if you're gay, it's like being engaged in bestiality. That's not even a moderate conservative position to have. That, that's not even a, a position of freedom to have. That's a position of power and control. And so I just want to be very clear to the audience. Like we're talking about this because we're concerned about the views that Mike has with the religious, frankly, fanaticism behind it. And I say that as a fellow Christian, uh, where people like Mike see themselves as God's chosen leader to now rule from a place of authority. And Mike said this in a prayer, like well, his first prayer or first opening you know, um, monologue to the house was, you know, God chooses those uh, who he, he raises up those in authority. He chooses that, which, of course, the big joke online was, well, not Mike didn't believe that when Joe Biden got elected. He tried to overturn the election. Right. But can you give us maybe some more insight to to some more of the Christian nationalists slash NAR ties that you've seen between Mike and that whole world? Yeah. And, and let me also be clear, because I, I, I try to make this point in the piece that I wrote about him and the bulwark. Um, I'm less concerned with his conservative views. Yeah. Right. I disagree with his view of abortion. I disagree with him very strongly on LGBTQ rights. I'm sure I could find a host of political issues where I disagree with him on. Um, and there are many theological issues I would disagree with him as a church going Christian. Right. I, there, there are things that I'm just like, I disagree with his theology, but that shouldn't preclude him from holding office. Right. That shouldn't preclude him from being able to have the views that he has. And I think there is room in democracy for people to hold extreme views, sometimes religiously extreme views, but as long as they're willing to play by the rules of democracy, then democracy can contain that extremism. It can find its place within different coalitions. And as long, like, I mean, there, there are people that I disagree with on these issues, like David French or Russell Moore. Sure. But I respect them as people who say, you know what? I have my own views, but I live in a pluralistic democracy and my way doesn't always win. And I respect the rules, right? My worry about Mike Johnson is that he is politically extreme in addition to being religiously extreme. Mm. He, and he has a vision for how to implement these things. He wants to take over the government. He wants to implement these things. And he's willing to push past the rules of democracy to do that. And we saw that around the 2020 election. And that's what worries me. That's what worries me about the NAR. It's not, oh, I disagree with their theology. I do. But I, right. I, I worry about the, the threat that it poses to our democracy much more than I worry about, oh, uh, well, I, I, I disagree with them about these things. 
So let me, if you want to react to that, because I, I recognize, I don't want to impose that on you. You might disagree with me on that. That's no, fine. I want to, I want to say I completely agree with you. I mean, you know, a hundred percent there. Yes. Uh, democracy is the key to all of this. I totally agree. People are allowed to have views that I don't agree with, et cetera. And you're right. Like my, the, the reason why we're concerned, right. Isn't because uh, the NAR believes in speaking in tongues or even prophetic words. Oftentimes it's how those things might get weaponized to harm people or how sometimes that theology leads to very extreme views like the seven mountain mandate, right? Oh, we are called to now dominate and rule over these seven spheres of influence to maybe usher in the return of Christ. Well, when that starts imposing I me, mean, Andrew Seidel, a constitutional lawyer says, you know, your right to swing your fist stops where my face begins. And I have oftentimes found that that, that these types of ideologies don't care about the faces that they're hitting uh and they call that you know uh freedom right which really is right. not freedom for other people so i completely agree continue on so in terms of the nar um one of the things you have to realize about this independent charismatic world is because there are not overarching institutional structures like denominations yeah. that that hold these things together associations and affiliations are really really important in that world Right. It's not this is not a world where it's like, oh, he belongs to X club and therefore we know Y and Z about him. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a world where it's it's a relational world among leaders. And so it's important to see who are the leaders that he's hanging around with, who are the the the, the, the people that he's associating with and who is he paying tribute to in those moments. So. Um, let me just give a couple instances then of, of where I really see this showing up. So um, if you think back to um, the 2020 election, really the Trump administration, Trump had a band of evangelical advisors. And um, this was overwhelmingly an independent charismatic group. Um, it was more than 50%, I'd say, on just about every list, because the list sometimes change, of, of Trump's evangelical advisors. More than 50% of them are independent charismatics. And one of the major independent charismatic NAR advisors to Donald Trump is a guy named Jim Garlow. And Jim Garlow comes out of Southern California, came out of, uh, was a pastor in the San Diego area for a long time. And in the last 15 years, he has really just been in lockstep with the New Upsolk Reformation folks, mimicking their theology, participating in their institutions, joining their coalitions. And Jim Garlow was a very close advisor to Trump. I mean, if you Google Jim Garlow and name a member of the Trump administration that you've heard of, he probably has a picture of them. Name a member of the Trump family. He probably online has a picture of himself with them. And um, so Garlow, when the 2020 election is called for Joe Biden, he and another Trump evangelical advisor named Mario Bromnik stand up a series of calls called the Global Prayer for Election Integrity Calls. And this is a key organizing space for January 6th. Steve Bannon, um, Michael Flynn, Doug Mastriano, they're all mm -hmm. joining these calls at different points. Sean Foyt joins at least one of these calls. These are calls that are led usually by NAR apostles and prophets. Um, they are talking about spiritual warfare, but they're also talking about practical planning, right? Steve Bannon comes on to tell about, here's what we're doing in the courts right now, and here's what you should be praying for, and here's how you should be organizing, right? It's a st strategic organizing space that leads into January 6th. In fact, one of these calls actually is going on as January 6th rioting is happening. And there are people calling in from the riot to this call to give updates for how to pray. Wow. And so th this is a very, very important vector in understanding Christians and the mobilizing for January 6th. But those calls are still going on today. They're now called the World Prayer Network calls, still led by Garlow and Bromnick, still happening with regularity. 
And Mike Johnson has been a regular participant in these calls, not just a participant in the sense of sitting on the call and listening to people. He has been kind of almost in some ways their congressional correspondent where he'll come on and update them on here's what's going on in Congress. Here's how we're working on this thing. Here's the type of stuff that you should be focused on. Here's what you should be mobilizing around. And um, so he and, and on these calls, he pays tribute. To Jim Garlow, he says, you know, you and I have been friends for years. You have meant the world to my walk in Christ, right? He's very effusive in his praise of Jim Garlow. In February, this past February, February 2023, there usually is the National Prayer Breakfast. And this year it got really muddled. Um, so the National Prayer Breakfast historically was handled by this group called the, the, the Family the Fellowship mm. Foundation. Um, they're the ones who kind of created the National Prayer Breakfast. And, and this year, because there was new leadership in Congress, they decided to take that 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 role away from this very right-wing Christian group that had been organizing it. It also got, there were Russian spies infiltrating the National Prayer Breakfast and trying to influence people. If you remember the story, it was about Maria Butina. It had gotten really out of hand. It became this multi-day thing. So this the, the Congress actually stepped in and created a bipartisan group to plan the national prayer breakfast. So now there were two national prayer breakfasts, the one organized by the family and the one organized by Congress. And Jim Garlow and Mike Johnson decided they didn't like either of those. And they decided to create a third of it on the same day. And so this third event was almost entirely led by NAR folks, but there were a lot of con Congress people involved. Kevin McCarthy, all these people were all showing up at this event. It was held at the museum of the Bible. There were the, the one of the woman who leads worship at this event was somebody who was literally at the Capitol riot, leading worship over the Capitol on a PA system, along with Cindy Jacobs and Becca Greenwood. If you listen wow. to Charismatic Revival Fury, you can hear her voice singing as she's, she's talking about, we, we cover the Capitol in the blood of Jesus. This woman, Alma Rivera, is the one they bring in to lead worship at this event at the Museum of the Bible. And at this event, they have people blowing shofars, just like mm -hmm. they did at the Capitol riot. They have prayers about retaking America, reconquering America, right? And all of this is, and, and, and then Mike Johnson and a bunch of other congressional delegates get up and they lead prayers, the same thing. And on one of these calls, Jim Garlow says, you were at the heart, you were at the epicenter, Mike, of organizing that. And I just want to pay tribute that you were the one who pulled this thing together. Very extreme right-wing NAR organizing event that's going on just this year. And he's saying, Mike Johnson, you are at the heart of this thing, right? So this guy has been kind of deeply networked in that world. Wow. The, the other major thing that, that I get into in the, in the piece is that these NAR networks, they have these networks of churches in just about every congressional district, every state, you're going to find some of these independent, charismatic, non-denominational churches. And these are very politically active churches. And one of these churches is called the Christian Center Shreveport. It's in Mike Johnson's district. Um, it's being led by a guy who's a disciple of Dutch Sheets. His name is Timothy Karskaden. He identifies as an apostle. He's very tied into these networks. And what you hear, because Mike Johnson has gone to Timothy Karskaden's church multiple times, has spoken there multiple times. In fact, the week after the Dobbs decision overruling Roe v. Wade happened, which is something that Mike Johnson has worked his entire life to, to, to have, have happen, he goes and speaks that Sunday at Timothy Karskaden's church to talk about the importance of what has happened and the practical impact and moving forward, what are we supposed to do, right? So this is really the heart. He invited Timothy Karskaden to be at the Capitol when he was sworn in in um, 2017, I guess it was. And right, so they're, they're very close relationship with, between this guy, Timothy Karskaden and this guy, Mike Johnson. 
Timothy Karskaden mimics Dutch Sheets theology. And this is something I got into in Charismatic Revival Fury. Very, very extreme ideas. Sometimes hard to parse exactly what mm. they're saying if you aren't familiar with what's going on. And we, if you want, we can get into some of the details. But Karskaden is, is, is a Dutch Sheets acolyte. And I would say, and I, this is the point I make in Charismatic Revival Fury, there are a lot of Christian leaders involved in organizing for January 6th. I don't think any one of them was nearly as effective as Dutch Sheets. I think he was the most important Christian leader for mobilizing for January 6th and fueling the theology and the ideas of that day. If you've ever seen one of those appeal to heaven flags, the white yeah. flag with an evergreen tree in the middle of the phrase appeal to heaven, it's become a very prominent symbol in Christian national circles. Dutch Sheets created that symbol. It's a revolutionary war flag, but Dutch Sheets reappropriates it in the, in the mid 2010s. And he finds out about it in 2013, writes a book about it in 2015. And, it, and he's the one who has propagated this flag as a symbol of prophetic spiritual warfare, Christian nationalism, that if you trace it back, that all goes back to Dutch Sheets. These are the circles that Mike Johnson is running in. These are the people that he's hanging around with. And on Dutch Sheets has a daily podcast called Give Him 15. And, and on his episode, the day that after uh, Timothy or Mike Johnson was, was nominated, um, Dutch Sheets starts t- talking about, well, I don't know him personally, but I know a lot of people who know him. And mm. here's here's what I'm hearing from them. He is he's on our side. This is a miracle from God that he got elected. In fact, I was this is where you hear these rumors. I was hearing a few days before he got elected that that he was was in in the running, and I thought, oh God, this is the right person for this role. And God's hand is on him, and God's anointed like the same language that you hear about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's election that he's anointed by God, that it's a miraculous intervention by God. They're using that language about Mike Johnson and his elevation as speaker. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, it's worse than we thought, frankly. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, you know, what are some of the political objectives of people in the, uh, in the NAR? I mean, it sounds like they really feel like they have their champion now in the House of Representatives in, in Speaker Mike Johnson. What are some of like their goals politically? Are they looking to you know, um, I don't know, like, I feel like a lot of these folks are so wrapped up in culture war issues that it's like, okay, we want to minimize queer rights, we'll call it religious freedom, we want to, you know, outlaw abortion. But like, is there anything else that, 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 that they're focused on politically that has to do with like helping people? Or is it mostly around the culture war issues? The underlying political theology of the New Upstock Reformation is what we call the Seven Mountain Mandate. Mm. Um, this is coined by Lance Wall now, um, but it, it, I mean, this is one of the unifying ideas of the NAR is the seven mountain mandate. And the idea of the seven mountain mandate is that you can divide society up into these different areas of influence, government, family, education, arts and entertainment, media. And what they think is that, that Christian, the imagery of the mountains, right, is it's an imagery of ascent, but it's also an imagery of conquest, Right. They, they say the tops of those mountains, the positions of power in every one of those seven mountains in every society. And they would say those seven mountains exist in every society separately. In every society, the tops of those mountains is either controlled by Satan or by the kingdom of God. Hmm. Like no, nothing in between. Right. It's either Satan or the kingdom of God. So it's either Satan's agenda is happening in education or it's the kingdom of God agenda. And they say the mandate for Christians is to go and conquer the tops of the seven mountains, conquer the mountain of government, conquer the mountain of education, and then influence will flow from the top down. So we sometimes think about, and this terminology happens in social movement theory, right? That there's there's a model of a grassroots 
approach to transforming society, which yeah. is, has been the dominant model for evangelicals ever since the rise of the religious right. I mean, you could trace the grassroots back to the 19th century evangelicals who believe the more people we mobilize, the more people we get praying, the more people we get voting, the, then we can change society. This is a vanguard model of societal transformation. You take over the top positions, you take over the positions of influence, and you change society from the top, right? And this is the theology that is used by these NAR folks to justify supporting Donald Trump. In fact, C. Peter Wagner, who was the one who really got the New Apostolic Reformation together, he endorses Trump in um, February of 2016 in a Facebook post. And he says, look, Donald Trump has proven that he can conquer the media mountain and he can conquer the business mountain, hmm. right? He's successful in these other areas. What if he conquers the government mountain for us, right? This is the rationale. It's kind of a realpolitik disguised as theology that says Donald Trump, he's not a good Christian, but he can govern in, on our behalf. He can be our ally and take over the top of the mountain for us. Right. So that that is the, the underlying political theology here. And so for for the NAR, they're very, very, very ardent anti-abortion folks. In fact, the, the rhetoric in NAR circles is not, well, abortion takes the life of a child. That is that's very standard anti-abortion rhetoric. The, the imagery that they will use, and you'll see this in the rhetoric of someone like Lou Engel, um, Che On, a number of these leaders, Dutch Sheets even sometimes talks about this. Abortion is a form of child sacrifice. Yeah. And the sacrifice, the blood of these fetuses is fueling the power of literal demons who hold power over the United States. And in order to dethrone those demons, we have to get rid of abortion. Right. Sean that, Foyt that is used that rhetoric too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Sean Foyt is mentored by these people. And so, but I mean, when you think about it, there's, there's no negotiating if that, if that's your position on abortion, that is, it is fueling the power of demons right. and is a form of child sacrifice. There's no like, well, what are the rights of the women and what's the rights of the fetus? And maybe we put a marker at the end of the first trimester and say it should be hard. No, 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 no. That, that negotiation is completely off the table for them because in their minds, abortion is participating in these occult demonic practices. And, and so it has to be eradicated. These folks are very anti-LGBTQ. Um, and um, are some and some NAR institutions have engaged in sort of conversion therapy, but they've also helped spur some of this legislation in Uganda um, that criminalizes homosexuality. And you see that in the rhetoric of Mike Johnson as well. Um, in in the early two thousands, especially, he was saying some extremely anti LGBTQ things, even to the point of advocating saying states should be allowed to criminalize gay sex. That, that should be, uh, states should have the freedom to criminalize this because it is it is uh, uh, harmful to humanity that it exists, right? So I don't know, he might have changed his views on that. I, I, he, he doesn't strike me as somebody who changes his views very often. He might have changed his views, but that was the rhetoric he was using in the early 2000s. And he was a very active constitutional lawyer trying to push forward and advocate for these issues as well. So he's a very strong record that you can check on these things. And I think from the NAR leader's perspective, he aligns very nicely with their agenda, right? He's a culture warrior, but he's not the like throw down culture warrior. Yeah, right. He can, he can work behind the scenes. He can work the, the kind of influence circles that he has. 
And he's apparently been very effective in kind of finding his niche and exploiting it in these right-wing circles. Well, and he talks very unassumingly. I mean, I've heard him speak. He doesn't come across, to your point earlier, like a Jim Jordan or, or a Trump or a you know, a Sean Foyt, right? His language is, is not super bombastic. He has a pretty calm demeanor. He seems like he's a pretty friendly guy. Uh, and so I'm sure that kind of helps um, mask some of the more extreme views that he has underneath and also the networks that he works within uh, trying to, um, I mean, he wouldn't probably say I'm trying to subvert democracy. He would just say, I'm trying to follow the will of God, which just happens to put me at the top with me and my friends over everyone else. I mean, but it sounds like, and I'm kind of thinking about David Gushy here, his book, um, defending democracy from its Christian enemies. Great read. He uses the term authoritarian reactionary Christianity. That's how he kind of unpacks the phrase Christian nationalism. And he, for him, his point is like, People maybe like Mike Johnson or Christian nationalism, uh, they'll use democracy whenever it works for them. But the second it stops working for them, they have no problem throwing it out and, and appealing to more more authoritarian types of government or or populists to kind of give them that power back. Do you think that do you think that that's a fair assessment? I mean, from what I've seen, Johnson actually will say we aren't a democracy or a republic. There's a very yeah. common talking point you find in right-wing circles, right? Trying yes. to parse between democracy and republic. Um, and, and that's used then as a way to say representative republic means that the people's voice always gets filtered through leaders. And therefore, my view is the view of my district, right? Like that, that's, that's the upshot of that. So I don't, I don't, I'm not accountable to the people of my district in terms of being, attending to all of their needs and making sure that all of their voices count. I, I am the representative and I get to speak to the stuff. So I'm not sure he would say he was defending democracy. He might. I, I, the, but people get real slippery with this language of democracy. And I think we always have to be careful to say what kind of democracy we want, right? Mo most nation states in the world today say that they're democracies mm. in some form. But there's authoritarian democracies and there are liberal democracies, liberal with a lowercase l, right? There right. are um, um, deeply deeply anti-democratic democracies. We, we would call them maybe illiberal democracies, right? Hungary, Hungary pretends right, to be yeah. a democracy. Victor, Victor Turkey Orban, yeah. pretends to be a democracy. Russia ostensibly pretends to be a democracy, right? I advocate for pluralistic democracy, a democracy where everyone has equal citizenship, where everyone has rights, where there is the rule of law, where there's my protection for minority rights, and where majority rule occurs, right? That's that's a vision that I don't think Mike Johnson shares. And I think that is evident in the way that he responds to the 2020 election, right? right. He is at the heart of a lot of this mobilization within Congress to support Donald Trump, to find legal rationales for supporting Donald Trump, and to say, we need to back Trump no matter what even yeah. as Trump is lying about the election. He might actually believe that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. I don't know. But to, to, to advocate that we're going to overturn this election because we don't like the outcome and we suspect something is fishy with it, but we can't prove it in any way, that is anti-democratic. That is against pluralistic democracy at a very, very fundamental level. I'm not sure how you grew up in your religious tradition, but I grew up first more like independent reform, John MacArthur-ish. I eventually, as a drummer, found my way into more charismatic type spaces. I would not say 
I went down the the super deep charismatic space, but definitely was part of small groups, had the worship nights, you know, listened to people like Misty Edwards, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, believed in gifts of the spirit, uh, still on the fence theologically with, with how that works out even even now with how I think about those things. But it, it, what is what baffles me is that, um, and I'm not asking you to comment on this because I, I've noticed that with scholars I have on, they, they, they don't like giving their personal opinions on things. So that's fine, Matt. You don't have to do this, but I'll say it. For me, um, it is the more I process on this side of what we might call deconstruction or renegotiating faith, my faith journey, the more I think like, yeah, I understand how what I thought was normal was incredibly extreme uh, theologically. You know, uh, and also uh, quite um, arrogant of, of, of me to think that wherever I walk, the kingdom of God is walking, that I have authority to do things in the spirit world, right? Again, I don't want to throw it all out, all out the window. There's been really, I'm sure, great theological perspectives on the spiritual world and how that breaks down. You know, I, I still enjoy those those conversations. But the way that, that the more NAR type of people tend to think about things, it is incredibly like... It's so narrow and so power focused. And I think what gets oftentimes missed in Christian nationalism is that people will always say, and this goes for both sides of the reformed and charismatic space, they'll say, you know, we want God to rule. But the reality is that God is not embodied at this moment uh, in physical form in our reality, right? So what they're actually saying is that we think we should rule on behalf of God. Uh, and that that's like the sleight of hand there, right? It's like there's all these right. prayers about pleading the blood of Jesus over the capital. What that means is the people that we need in power to take back the country need to become in, get empowered. And that is how we know that our prayer was answered. Um, has that, you know, as you've been doing this work and really doing deep dives on the NAR, do you kind of find that I'm not, I'm going to assume more positive. I'm going to say it's not even intentional, but do you kind of see that bait and switch the more and more you do this work? Yeah. So um, the phrase that I use in Charismatic Revival Fury in my book to describe the model of the NAR is that it's a spiritual oligarchy, hmm. right? We we tend to think of authoritarianism as, as being about one person. That's why sometimes people use this language of, oh, the NAR is a cult. Right. But right. what we at least what usually gets talked about as a cult is a, 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 built around a single personality where the NAR is built around a constellation of personalities, a constellation of apostles and prophets. But it's not democratic in any way. Right. They 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 believe that these apostles and prophets are elites who've been gifted by God with special charismatic authority. And they get to carry that authority and they get to speak. The mind of God, and so and, and so th this comes out especially in the theology of Dutch sheets that you hear in some of these calls with Mike Johnson. So just to, just to give you the five minute version because it, it it it's really quite quite wild. Dutch sheets reinterprets the theology of the church to say that the church is actually the governing body on the earth. That the God has anointed the church to govern the earth. And he uses the Greek term that we use for the church, ekklesia, which is in Greek just literally means assembly. And Dutch, she says, you need to think of it more like the way we use assembly in government, like mm -hmm. a state assembly. And so the church, this is a phrase that he'll use, the church is made to legislate in the spiritual and then enact in the natural. And we call down the verdict or the blueprint of heaven for society. And then we enact that blueprint. 
And they'll even use the language of colonizing. Dutch sheets will say, this is the model is that we are a colonizing force sent from heaven to take over the earth wow. and bring the culture of heaven into the earth. Right. That's this is the rhetoric that they're using. These are this is the imagery. This is the theology that they're using. And this is what Timothy Karskaden is saying to Mike Johnson in some of these clips where Mike Johnson is visiting his church. And, and Timothy Karskaden with Mike Johnson on stage turns away from the audience and turns to Mike Johnson, who's about to get up and speak and says, you know, God has put an, a, a governmental anointing on our church. Because we are the ecclesia. We are a governing body. And it's our destiny that we're supposed to change Shreveport. We're supposed to change the world. We need to bring the government of heaven to earth. Right? So, no, the, the, for these folks, I, I think, they, yeah, there's always this deferral. There are, there's always a sense of, well, Jesus is the real Lord. And we're just humble servants, right? <laughs> right. But they sure are ready to stand in and speak for Jesus. They sure are ready to govern until Jesus comes back. In fact, they will use... This phrase, is, it's fascinating. So in one of Jesus's parables, right, it's a parable about sending out business people. And and um, and the, the, they're each given a little bit of money. And, and, and the, 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 the Lord who's giving out the money says to them, um, go and do business with this. And in the King James Version, it says, um, occupy until I return. And you'll find NAR people saying, the Lord told us we're supposed to occupy until he returns. They're quoting a parable. Jesus literally didn't say that. It happened, it's something he talked about internal wow. to a parable. But wow. they're saying these are instructions from God that we are supposed to occupy the earth, occupy society, occupy the high places until Jesus comes back. Sometimes, you know, I this is just more me pontificating on what you just said, but it, it, it really blows me away how, um, like— if these folks were like, hey, listen, we believe in the reign of God, the year of Jubilee, affordable health care, uh, liberate the oppressed, you know, like, let's clothe the naked. And they, oh, hey, listen, the theology maybe isn't my thing, but yeah, like, it's a great outcome. I, we, we should take care of the, the oppressed and, you know, all that stuff. Unfortunately, this language is often code for how do we really assert a very particular political view that really minimizes the rights of people that we think are demonic or that are evil or that are sinning against God. And it just blows me away how you can read the four gospels or like, or like James five, which is a damning critique, right? Of rich business people who exploit their, their workers and think, yeah, like what God in, in the Bible anyway, really cares about, you know, is like the gay person down the street or like, you know, drag queen story hour. And I think that that's what gets me continually just perplexed right is is how people in these spaces can be so absolutely confident as they speak they really are convinced that they are speaking the the objective truth of the creator of the universe and that objective truth just happens to always benefit them and always happens to minimize the rights of other people that they just happen to not like because the bible is apparently clear and i just think it's very difficult to to get out of that web when you grow up in that, because all you can see is how particular verses like the ones you just mentioned have been interpreted already for you and have been weaponized to already come to a certain political conclusion. And it just, you know, it just, it, it is a frustrating thing to recognize that more and more uh, and to be like, wow, the whole premise is built on a very unstable theological interpretation that also leads to a lot of damage for anyone not like them. Yeah, and this is part of where I'm a little bit leery 
about using language of Christian nationalism. Um, not because I disagree with it. I, I, I think there's some real value to it. But Christian nationalism is a huge phenomenon. I mean, you yeah. look at some of these surveys, 45% of the country will agree on a survey with a question, the United States should be a Christian nation. Right. So the, the real question is, what do people mean when they say that? What yeah. is underneath that theology? For some people, when you drill down, and Pew has done this in some of their surveys, PRRI has done this in some yes. of their surveys. When you yep. drill down, when somebody say, says yes to that, okay, so, so you think that the we the we should get rid of the first amendment and the united states federal government should declare the united states a, a christian nation most people who answered yes that it should be a christian nation will say no hmm. they'll say no i don't think that they'll say no i don't think the the supreme court should use the bible to make decisions right so there, there there's that there's this vague sentimental style of christian nationalism that's like i i just want a simpler time when you know we were all christian and right it's it's it's, it's hazy what, yeah. I, what, I, what I'm talking about with these NAR folks, I use the terminology, it's Christian supremacy. Mm. It is an organized, theologically driven, systematic approach to building Christian supremacy. That's what the Seven Mountains model is, right? Christians ruling, Christians taking over. And in the Christian supremacist mind, Christians are more valuable than other people. And they would say, well, that's not prejudice, that's not bigoted, because anyone can become a Christian. Right. Right. So there's there, in their mind, Christians are the ones who are delegated by God to rule over the earth. Christians are the ones delegated by God to rule over society. And their agenda is to enact a system in which that can happen, which Christianity is dominant. And I would say you could form a system like that that is still vaguely democratic, but it will not be pluralistic. It will not be pluralistically democratic. Right. A majority yes. of Christians might vote for that. But that does not make it a democracy in the modern liberal sense. It does not make it a space for where people, where everyone is protected, where everyone is equal. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think it's also important to specify that we're talking about a very specific flavor of Christian thought, right? Like people like, for example, Sean Foy, he's maybe the most popular example that is at least adjacent to this rhetoric. You know, people like me or you or people who might be more quote unquote progressive, even just politically, even if I'm theologically conservative, right? If I'm more progressive in some of my political views, I'm automatically on the out. Doesn't matter if I affirm a physical resurrection or the Trinity or any of the classical creeds or even the authority of the Bible. If I don't step in line with how they would see the outworking of a certain theology, um, I'm automatically not really a Christian according to them. So even in the broad scheme of Christian thought, this is such a narrow slice of that pie uh, numerically speaking, um, you know, and, and even in terms of how popular the theology is, but it really mandates that all assimilate or all get cast aside and then are on the side of the devil, right? I mean, that, that's really for NAR folks and for that prophetic kind of way of thinking about things, you're either with God or you're, you're on the side of Satan. Like there really is no in between there. And being on God's side means being on their side and being on their side means having these political outlooks and this Christian supremacy view that mandates that we have to be in charge and rule from the top down. And I think that's what makes this whole system so absolutely dangerous to a pluralistic society of 300 million different people with different beliefs and religious backgrounds, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I would agree with you that these ideas are coming from a, a narrow segment of Christians. It's a narrow slice of Christians, Yeah, but it's growing in influence. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have a, a friend and colleague who's a sociologist named Paul Jupe, who after Charismatic Revival Fury ran, he and I were in conversation and he actually put in the field a survey 
a, a, a survey asking about the seven mountains and about modern prophecy. And he's published these results, so you can find it on his blog, um, where, so, so he, and he asked, it was a survey of all Americans, do you agree that Christians should sit atop the seven mountains of society like government and education and media? Right. So it's a very, very tailored question. And this is Lance Wallnow came up with the seven mountain mandate in the year 2000. Right. So this is not even a phrasing or an idea that is 25 years old. Right. What Paul Jupe found is that more than 20 percent of Americans agreed with those statements, either agreed or strongly agreed with that statement about Christians should sit atop the seven mountains of society. Wow. Right. Not 20 percent of Christians, more than 20 percent of Americans. Right. right. That is how far these ideas have traveled. Now, is every person who says yes to that question a Christian supremacist? I would say no. Right. There's a lot of people who don't even understand the ideas that they're, they're talking about and the, where they come from and their origins and the ideology behind them. But these ideas are spreading. They're in the ether right now, especially as you have this right wing kind of Christian nationalist mobilization. They're spreading in those circles and becoming more and more gravitational in our politics. No, I, that part I totally agree with you um, on. In fact, in the PRI data um, on Christian nationalism, they really showed how um, I think they said close to 35, 40 percent of all Americans are in the sympathizer uh, are in the uh, yes, yeah, sy- sympathizer or adherent category. But they found that pretty much seven out of 10 white evangelical Protestants are like are there. Right. So we can obviously see like it. I think we have enough data to at least trace a good chunk of the source, but you're right. So much of the language is so effective that so many of them are really good communicators. They use the power of social media. They're amplified through things like Turning Point USA or Daily Wire, PragerU, whatever. And those ideas then become disseminated into people who have no clue where that stream is flowing from, right? They might just hear through Charlie Kirk that, hey, Christians, because we're the most ethical, because we have God on our side, we should be the ones running society. That way society is healthier. Oh, that makes sense. That sounds good, says, you know, old Susie in the pew. She doesn't know any better and hits yes to that survey question, right? Without even knowing what Charlie actually means or whoever they're drawing from actually means when they say that. So I agree with you. And I think that is the, that's what makes it so powerful is that even though it is a small segment, it's, it's really good at getting its ideas out into other spheres that maybe they wouldn't even, wouldn't even interact with directly, but their ideas have reached. Yeah. And part of the problem too is Christians don't feel threatened by Christian supremacy. Mm. And so, right, if, if, if I'm your average Joe in the pews and I hear Christians are supposed to sit atop the seven mountains and Lance Walnug is a really compelling presentation and shows you on a whiteboard how the seven mountains work and says this was a prophecy, it's kind of like, oh, that sounds really great, right? That sounds really cool. But that person sitting in the pew is not thinking about their Jewish neighbor or their Muslim right. neighbor or their atheist neighbor who is very much threatened by these ideas whose existence in America, whose equality is threatened by these ideas. So I think part of what we have to do is encourage Christians, even sympathizing Christian nationalist Christians to say, hey, you know what? If if you're sympathetic to Christian nationalism, how about you show a little sympathy for your Jewish and Muslim and atheist neighbor who's going to find themselves on the outs in the America that Lance Wall now is envisioning? Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I guess to wrap this up, you know, the, the reality is the person who is currently Speaker of the House uh, is um, a huge win for the NAR Christian supremacy types. And um, it'll be very interesting to see how that all shakes out in the next, you know, we're uh, well, a little about a little over a year by a few days of, of another election cycle coming up. 
So it's going to be very interesting to watch kind of how this all shakes out. Uh, any final thoughts, any closing thoughts on Mike or anything, any other observations that you want to make? I'll just share with you my, my, my latent anxiety. Okay. Yes. I, do it. I, <laughs> we, we are, we're, 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 yeah, like you said, we're about a year out from the next presidential election. I think, especially if Donald Trump is the candidate, which looks very, very likely at this point that he'll be the Republican candidate. There were hundreds of charismatic prophecies about Donald Trump becoming president in 2020 or staying president in 2020. All these charismatic prophets, all these NAR prophets, independent charismatic prophets, Pentecostal prophets, were all saying in chorus, in unison, Donald Trump is going to win this election. And that was the epistemic piece that drove January 6th. Hmm. This belief that Donald Trump was prophesied to win the election, it must have been stolen from him. And so we need to claim it back, right? That was the Christian side of January 6th. If Donald Trump becomes the candidate again, a lot of those prophecies are going to resurface. A lot of that energy is already, that energy is already at a high boil right now, and it's going to bubble over. And we're going to enter into a time after the 2024 election, I think, where the election will be contested. No matter who is declared the winner, I think there will be a season of legal contestation, right? Because there's been so much monkeying around with voter rolls and all these sorts of things. It's going to be messy. And in that season between the election and January 6th, the certification of the votes again, which is going to happen again on January 6th, and the inauguration, there's a lot of room for monkey business, which is what we saw in late 2020 and early 2021, yes. right? Yeah. When when you introduce modes of chaos into that space, that liminal space between the current administration and the next administration, it can be really bad. And what happens when it's not Nancy Pelosi at the head of Congress, but Mike Johnson? Right. And the amount of power, the amount of damage that somebody in that role can do Lordy, right? So that this is my latent anxiety is it's not it, it's less about the season leading up to the election, which I think could be very difficult and, and, and challenging. But that that season of spiritual warfare that is almost scripted already for that period after the election, where the wheels could really come off our democracy in some very dangerous ways. Yeah. I'm with you, Matt. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, Matt, I have Mike written for my topic here. But yes, Matt, I'm with you 100%. Um, it's why we're working feverishly to do what we can to try and, and combat this and you know amplify voices like yours and others. So I appreciate you making time. Of course, you and I will keep in touch. I'm sure you'll be back on the podcast soon enough for covering something else. But keep up the good work. Your work is really essential. When, when does your, your new book come out? So it's sent off to the publishers now in production. It should be available for, available for pre-order in January. The title of the book is The Violent Take It by Force the Christian movement that is threatening our democracy. It should be available for pre-order in January and it'll come out in September of 24. Who's publishing? Broadleaf. Nice. Love that for you. All right. Well, listen, keep in touch. When you're ready to come back on to talk about the book, we'll make it happen. Thank you, Tim. You got it. 